welcome in the Bible tends to mean three kinds of things. Uh, you look at a book like Romans, uh, Romans, and Paul is encouraging the Christian believers to welcome one another. That's clearly a, a, com- a community that knows each other, is trying to love one another, and he's saying welcome them. Um, at other times, it's very explicit that it's about welcoming the stranger who you may be getting to know for the first time or is new to your community. At other times, like in 3 John, uh, that same welcome word is used for visiting Christians or missionaries. So, so there's, a, there's a broad spectrum of things that that word welcome means. But I would encourage us not to lose this very key emphasis in the Bible on welcoming the stranger. Uh, what, what, you know, it's a broad term, but let's not lose that emphasis. Yes, thank so, you. That's, that's um, yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Um, so, okay, here's another one. Talking to people on the tube, in the shop, or even in my neighbourhood just feels too overwhelming for me. People often don't actually want to be spoken to. How can we overcome this? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point, that actually, um, I, I guess that's coming out of my seeing people on your daily journey and thinking, okay, um, what is it actually going to mean for me to try and interact with all of those different people? And um, I guess there are some times when it can feel slightly less daunting than going into the complete unknown and speaking to someone. So, for example, the cafe that I mentioned. Well, I go in there sometimes and order a coffee. And I could say hello, I could smile, I could ask their name. So, just in the same way that I was having a conversation with someone earlier about homeless people who we sometimes pass in the street. And actually, when you speak to homeless people, they'll often say, if someone just says hello and asks me my name, that is so profound. They may not give me anything, but it makes a massive difference if they say hello and ask my name. So there are small things that we, we can do, I think. There was someone who I knew, um, well, I say knew, I, met, I was at a community event and I met a woman. She said, oh, you know my husband. And she was telling me about where they lived and so on. I was racking my brain. I couldn't remember ever speaking to her husband. And it materialized that over the last year, whenever we walked past each other, I smiled. And in his mind, my smile had it become so frequent that it was as if we were friends. And in London, actually smiling at someone can be so profound that it can have a, a big impact. So actually just thinking about our affect as we pass people can be a first step. So let's think about the small steps that we can do uh, with the people that we meet. And I recognise sometimes you know, it might feel overwhelming. That's, that's really helpful, isn't it? I think, do, do we sometimes think, oh, if we're talking about talking to people as Christians, we, we kind of mean, oh, I've got to stroll up to them and have a gospel conversation Maybe. with them, you know, in the first few minutes. And, uh, and I, you know, I can't possibly do that, so yeah. I can't really say anything. Yeah, And, yeah. Um, yeah, to sort of start small is, is, is a very helpful thing to remember, isn't it? That I think that's absolutely just right. Just to be friendly. And I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think I find that I, I really empathise. I don't know if other people do, but I really empathise with your point before about, you know, even if you see somebody and you think, oh, maybe they haven't seen me, so I can just carry on, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but actually to, you know, just to even just go towards them and make eye contact and just yeah. say hi and then move on. You know, that yeah. will, that's the beginning of something. I mean, who knows what will happen next time. Um, but... Um, 
it's something. I, it's also is it something to talk to each other, you know, about the the, the the encounters that we have and the things that the people that we meet in our small group discussions as well. I maybe. think that's that, that's that's really important. And actually, th there is something about the the privatisation of our culture today, and th you know there are risks sometimes, aren't there? I'm not being unreal about the realities, but even I gave an example earlier about Jesus being tired wanting to be alone, and then he ended up feeding 5,000 people. But actually, he did that with the disciples. Um, he, he got them involved. And, and thinking, how can we do this as a community? Mm. And thinking, how as a church can we do things together? And how can we be in public spaces more, um, you know, that, so that we're not on our own, can sometimes change the dynamic. Thank you. This is sort of connected. Um, what's the best way to respond to someone in need on the street? Beggars, people who are homeless... I feel nervous to talk to them, and giving money can sometimes do more harm than good. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I guess I partly answered that by saying just, just saying hello, number one, asking their name if you feel up to it. I'll uh, often say I don't give money, but I, I will buy you a sandwich. That's my sort of standard thing. I, I've got into the habit um, recently of at the beginning of the month taking out a certain sum of money. Because I don't know about you, I never carry cash, and it moves towards a cashless society, but once a month, go to the cash machine, take out a sum of money that I have then on me that is for me to give away. And so that means that uh, if, I, if I'm approached or if there's someone in need, I, I, don't have to, I don't have the excuse of just saying I, ha I have nothing. I've actually made a decision in advance to have something on me. I agree, um, very often money can be misused and abused so that's a personal conscience issue about whether you choose to do that in the moment or not. But those are some starters for 10. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Do keep, and um, do, uh, oh, if, you, if you, sorry. Oh, the, the other thing I would say is very often this, the, the question is a result of us needing to be reactive as opposed to proactive. So if it is homelessness, for example, could you give to a homeless charity in advance? So be proactive rather than feeling you're just being reactive in the moment. So... Weber Street, London City Mission thing, but there are many other homeless charities out there. And then you've made a decision in your heart, I'm doing something about this. Thank it's you. not quite doing something with the local thing, but it is saying, I'm not ignoring this problem. I'm doing something. And there are people who are really best placed to deal with that, and I'm going to support them. And it's not just a sort of attempt to assuage guilt in the yes, moment. exactly. That exactly. I can then, I've done something, I'll move on and forget about it. Yes. You actually... Doing something. It's not just virtue signalling, that's Completely. the other thing, you know, Completely. look at all the people watching me caring for this homeless person. Yes. Um, it's actually doing something meaningful that will actually make a difference. And if you know their name, you can pray with them. Let's not underestimate that mm. we, we believe in a God who, you know, the, the key to the power of God is prayer. And so if we know their name, we can actually pray for them. Let's not underestimate the power of that. Thank you very much. And do, um, if, if further questions arise as we have these um, discussions do do keep adding questions in, and we'll come to them tonight or or tomorrow morning. Um, let's look and see. So, how can a church like St John's, which draws people who don't speak English as their first language, help those people feel welcome when sermons or instructions might not be easily understood? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in, in one sense, we're going to be thinking about that in this next session. So I'm going to hold back right. from Let's do that. that. Yep. Yeah, great. Okay. 
Um, how do we identify our red lines? So I'm not quite sure what that question means. Yeah, so in the last talk, I was referring so, to the fact that Peter seemed to have, he, he, yeah, okay. he was at the house of Simon the Tanner, so he seemed to be prepared to do some level of cross-cultural engagement, but actually there was some sort of line that he wouldn't cross, so that when he was asked to go to Cornelius, he was saying, no way. Um, and I guess let's do this in community. I think that's the, the best answer. We're often not the best judges ourselves of where our red lines are. And perhaps it's over time with others that, that others might help us to identify them. So maybe ask people close to you, do you notice ways mm. in which I could grow in this area? Right, okay. Um, okay, so here's one that perhaps is slightly different, but I think helpful. How do we speak to the LGBT community, given that there is a perception that the two communities of Christians and LGBT can appear mutually exclusive and potentially hostile? Yeah, great question. Um, and a question that's multifaceted, depending on the exact context and situation we're talking about. But I guess my starter for 10 would be to say, um, you know what, um, as a Christian, um, I believe all people are made in the image of God and loved by God. And the way that I, the, the Bible tells me to define each person is as someone made in the image of God and loved by God. That applies to you as much as it applies to anyone else. And so, um, as a Christian, I'm committed to love you as someone made in the image of God and loved by God. So can I, can I say, if you, if, you, if you don't see me doing that, Call me out on it because the Bible commands that I should treat you in that way. But, um, but, it, but it also says that I, I don't define people by their sexuality. Uh, the way that I define people, the way that God encourages me to define people, is made in the image of God and loved by him. So that's my starting point. So I don't know, that's a, that's a starter for 10. Thank you. And there's so much more we can, um, we can say, but let's, yeah, that, that's, that's helpful. Um, Let's have one more and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on. But um, can you give some more examples of what countercultural hospitality means in middle-class North London where it is easily equated with occasional reciprocal entertaining in recently tidied houses? Yeah, I mean, thank you. Um, so, so the last talk uh, was all about this idea of hospitality. And... And our assumption is that hospitality is something that we can, uh, you know, that is grand. I mean, the first, I, I became a Christian, uh, as, I, as I said, in my sort of teen, teens, late, late teens and early 20s. And I remember one of the first times I was invited round to someone's house for a, a meal. And it was a, a seven-course dinner. Um, you know, the person who was hosting had spent, I think, most of the week preparing um, I can't remember the wine that it was served, but it, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It, it was a level of hospitality that was impossible for anyone to, um, you know, uh, replicate. There are about 20 of us around the table. Um, and, and how many of us have a table that, a table can fit 20 people around it, let alone anything else. And um, I think it's remembering what hospitality is, which is really key here, is welcoming uh, people, the stranger into your space and so if we think about it like that it's not about the quality it's about relationship 
And are we, so what does it look like for us as a family, for example? Uh, very often we might invite people uh, after church without any planning to come back to join us for a boiled egg and a slice of toast. Yeah, not very. <laughs> in, in a kitchen where we all have to sit down because if we stand up, there won't be space to move around sort of thing. And actually just having that as normal. And I think, I think those of us who love hospitality, there'll be those among you who love hospitality. And I think there's a challenge to us to make sure that we're not doing it in such a way that actually it disempowers others. Another thing I would say is that because hospitality is about remembering um, that the people who we're inviting are, are special and can bless us, let's not do hospitality in such a way that the people coming feel like they have nothing to bring. So for many years, we would do hospitality. People would come over to us, you know, can we bring anything? No, 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 don't bring anything. Uh, while they're there, can we help? No, 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 just sit there, we'll do everything for you. And there's something about that that's actually quite disempowering for the people. So, so actually, we, we've completely changed the way we do it, trying to involve people as much as possible. They, they can get up and look after the kids and put things in the, in, in the dishwasher or help wash them up or whatever it is, so that actually we're in this together and they're bringing things to our hospitality as well. Does that make sense? Mm. So I, I think, I don't know, though, I don't know if that begins yeah. to... Yeah, very good. Um, and what does it mean to be hospitable as a guest? So say a bit more about that. Yeah, thank you. So I think in the first instance, I mean, you think of Zacchaeus, you think of Jesus and Zacchaeus, of course, and most of Jesus' hospitality wasn't inviting people to eat at his place. It was going to other people's places. And I think at the, in the first instance, it's about being willing to do it. Um, it's about being willing to go into spaces where maybe you feel uncomfortable uh, or you're not used to going. I mean, that, that's the start of a term, be willing to be a guest in other people's uh, homes and in other people's uh, places. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think that would be a starter for 10, let me just say yeah, that. Yeah, thank you very much. Fantastic. We're, we're, we're going to find out tomorrow, hopefully, when Jill comes, about some of the things which are going on. And there's a, uh, you mentioned about a hostel. There's a hostel in Primrose yeah. Hill. Uh, we can ask Jill about what's going on there. Um, it's a hostel with, a, like, 120 yeah. male asylum seekers, mm. my understanding. Um, and what would it mean to go among into that group and you know what might that look like it's a good question and that's asking. that's a perfect example isn't it where we're actually in a sense we're we're guests in that situation we're going into their space yeah. and actually thinking how can we be a blessing yeah on your turf rather than you coming into our turf yeah yeah and that in many ways that feels you know equally or more challenging than just saying please come around to my house for a meal you know yeah. Can I go into that kind of space where I feel totally out of my depth and yeah. uh, don't know what to say and, you know, slightly fearful or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Okay, Jason, let's... Um, uh, let's um, Corin, would now be a good moment to just tell us about the gospel comes with a house key and then we'll yeah. move over to uh, the rest of the session with Jason. I'm about 20 pages into this book, so I cannot give you a comprehensive book review of this, uh, but I can tell you a little bit, a bit, bit about it. It's by a lady called uh, Rosaria Butterfield, and if any of you have uh, come across her before, you will know that hospitality played a, 
a huge part in her coming to faith when she uh, was invited as a fairly hostile person who was fairly hostile to the Christian faith uh, into a household of a local pastor and his wife um, and got used to going around there, dropping in, talking about the things that were on her, on her heart. Um, the subtitle of this is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Um, and although I've only read about 20, 30 pages of it, uh, that's partly because it's a very rich book that you can't read too much of it at, at once. Um, and I've already found it incredibly challenging, but also very inspiring. Actually painting a different way of doing our communal life together um, and getting beyond that kind of doing hospitality as inviting somebody around for a supper party kind of thing, um, of just actually building it into everyday life um, and kind of being there for our neighbours, opening our homes to our neighbours. Um, so I know that I will find this, this challenging, but I think it's going to be an incredibly worthwhile book to read and an inspiring book to read. So um, it's on the bookstore. What we'll do is um, probably kind of put a couple of times in the in the diary maybe june or july where we can actually talk about it for those who've who've read it um but i do already commend it to you warmly uh, as a great book to read okay thank you fantastic so um just one thing on that business of being a guest it just struck me that um sometimes the in-between spaces of um that, that are in our community can be great places of being a kind of guest. So, for example, um, we run a sort of food outreach, which doesn't happen in our church building. It happens in a kind of third space, uh, another community space. And often people can find it easier to come into that kind of space than they can at first to come into a church. So we're both guests in a kind of neutral space. And that's a kind of church-wide thing, really. We can't necessarily do that as individuals. But that's something that, that's worth thinking about. Likewise, we started doing a, a pub quiz in a pub that probably individually none of us would ever go into, if we're honest. But together as a group, uh, we, we go in there, participate, and there's an opportunity to make connections and so on. Now, that won't be for everyone, but just other examples of guest-like hospitality. Let me... Um, what you'll need for this is uh, the uh, section... Session three, notes on establishing diverse churches. Let me start with uh, a story. Joe uh, nudged the swing doors open and he looked around. He was early and the hall was only a third full. He sat near the back, unsure what to do next. Ten minutes later, with the hall almost three quarters full, someone stood up, started speaking, and Joe surveyed his fellow attendees. They were like an alien race. More women than men, singing together, largely silent and undemonstrative otherwise. After bobbing up and down and singing various Celtic rock-tinged songs, uh, which the musicians seemed to enjoy more than the crowd, uh, a man spoke for almost 30 minutes, occasionally drawing a chuckle for observations concerning lives for which 
with which Joe was not familiar, or issues that apparently meant much to others but not much to him. Joe grabbed a rich tea biscuit after the service but felt like a foreigner as he watched people. There was a preponderance of chinos, shirts and jumpers, many of them branded fat face or white stuff. What sort of crew did these people belong to anyway? There was a preponderance of people using words like preponderance. It was all unusually quiet and no one had popped out for a fag. Conversation circled around wine orders, independent film festivals and sports, although not football. And why was no one talking to him? Now, I, I say that this is just an amusing insight into how someone from a different cultural background might feel entering into a fairly common middle-class church culture. Now look, every church will have a culture. And culture means the rules that are kind of assumed. They're not written down. They go without being said. Now culture is not the problem. Every church will have a culture. That isn't the problem. The problem comes when a church is not aware of its culture or the impact it might have on others. Do you see the difference? Every church will have a culture. That's not the problem. It's, it's being self-reflective and aware of the things that make up uh, the way that it happens around here. And so that, I guess, sets up this, this session. How can we be a better place to welcome and integrate people from different backgrounds, whether it be socioeconomic or generational or ethnic? Um, I'm not going to labour some of these things on your uh, sheets. Uh, clearly, this is a biblical mandate. Let me read the first verse of that uh, quote from 1 Corinthians. Just as one body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts from one body, form one body rather, so it is with, with Christ. The point is that we are one in Christ, but our oneness doesn't obliterate our uniqueness. We're one in Christ, but it doesn't obliterate our uniqueness. And Paul, in fact, expects that our differences will actually enhance our function as a body. They are indispensable at the end of verse uh, 22. And so uh, with that kind of introduction, most of this session is about us getting into groups and thinking together about uh, different aspects of this challenge that I hope will stimulate us to think. Uh, we may not come up with all the answers, but I hope we'll go away just being challenged to think about different things. So I think in order for this to be most effective, it might be that you want to get into groups now uh, to, to enable that next bit to happen. So let's do that. Let's get into some sort of groups. And while you're doing that, here's the question I want you to think about. Um, share what encourages you about the diversity that you see at St. John's. What encourages you about the diversity that you see at St. John's. Just one thing that encourages you. Let's do that first, just for a couple of minutes. So the question was, if, if people have forgotten, the question was, what encourages you? What encourages you about the diversity you see at St. John's? What encourages you? Okay, I'm gonna draw you back there. Whether you've had a chance to speak or not, can I encourage you to maybe write that thing down? I think it's so helpful to write things down. So if you've got a, a pen or something, scribble something down. Scribble your encouragement down uh, on your paper if, that's, if you can. The next two little sections of discussion are really about taking stock, taking stock on where you are as a church. And before we get there, I wanna just 
just give us, remind us of a couple of definitions. So what does it mean when we talk about a multi-ethnic or multicultural church? What are we actually talking about there? Very often that word is defined sociologically. What the sociologists say is that when um, no single ethnic group makes up more than 80% of the congregation, that is a multi-ethnic or a multicultural congregation, no more than 80% makes up um, uh, the, the total of the congregation. And the reason for that is that when you have, um, uh, when you have uh, less than 80% of, of the total, it, you tend to have to make adjustments on the basis of the other people that are there. If there, if there are a few of lots of different uh, ethnicities or uh, people from different countries, whatever, you don't have to make much adjustment. When it's more than 20%, you have to begin to think, how do we do things differently? That's why they've come up with that. But you can imagine, it, it could still be possible for a church to call itself multi-ethnic, but actually, in reality, everything to just carry on business as usual, or another way to put it is to be multi-coloured but monocultural. Everything just happens the way that it did before. Nothing changes. And so this second definition of being intercultural is trying to get at something a bit deeper, a bit deeper. And the quote on page 12 uh, begins to bring that out. It's about uh, accommodation. Let me read it. I have no doubt that people mean well when they say that they would gladly welcome people of various ethnic or economic backgrounds to come to be part of their church. However, in practice, what they really mean is, as long as they like things the way that we do them, a healthy multi-ethnic church will be established, not by assimilation, but rather by accommodation. Notice the subtle difference. The word assimilate means to integrate somebody into a larger group so that the differences are minimized or eliminated. Yet the word accommodate means to adjust actions in response to somebody's needs. In other words, the church looks different in the way that things happen as a result of the different ethnicities or cultures that are part of it. So just a very, very basic example would be uh, if you came at a Sunday to uh, the bridge, uh, the church that I attend, you would have some songs very similar to the songs that we've sung uh, over this uh, last 24 hours, You'd also have some R&B songs in there as well. So, so the, the music would actually reflect something of the diversity within the congregation. That, it's not saying every church has to do it that way. Not saying that at all. And there are many, many different ways to, to think about these things. I'm just giving you a, a practical example to sort of try and ground it. Okay, we come to um, some, some work for you in groups. And again, as I say, this is taking stock. First exercise there is um, what is our mindset about this sort of thing. As you think about different cultures coming together and being integrated into the life of your church, what do you think about that? Do you think it's essential? Do you think it's instrumental? Do you think it's unnecessary? Or do you think it's a barrier? My colleague Jessamine did her PhD on this, and she found evangelical churches uh, who would think all of these things. So just have a think. Talk with one another about where you think you might be at the moment. This is not to say that there's something right or something wrong. It's just to take stock of where we think we are. Why not do that for a couple of minutes? I think it would be, it'd be very easy to sort of skip over this question and assume, well, we all kind of think this is amazing, 
But actually what you find is, that I imagine, I hope you found that there's slight differences of opinion. And this is really important because any kind of change that you make as a church will involve a cost. And because it involves a cost, you really need to think carefully about, do we believe this to be true? And and the extent to which we agree will determine the, I guess, the speed and the degree to which you can make changes. And so it's worth sort of reflecting and thinking on this sort of thing. I'm not expecting that we've come to any kind of um, magic revelation in the last five minutes, Uh, but I hope it just reveals the complexity of thinking these things through. So that, that was about where we think theologically about this. The second question is about, well, what is it like outside of the doors of the church? What is our community actually like? And these two questions are obviously linked. So in this question, we're thinking, what's our community actually like? Do we, do we know who lives in our local community from personal experience? Do we actually know what their lives are like, how they compare to ours, how they're different? And, and does our church reflect the community around us? And is there anyone ministering to to perhaps groups that you identify who you might be able to learn from? Maybe there are others who are doing who are already doing some work with people who do live locally that, that you're not, and could you learn from them? So just take a few minutes now to think about this. We've reflected on our own mindset about these things, now we're thinking about the community around us. Does that make sense? Fantastic. Let's go to that now. So I guess um, We're just dipping our toes in the water with each of these sections. There's so much to think about, uh, isn't there? But I hope it's stimulating you uh, to have good conversations. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make, I guess, is to try and engage uh, with culture without actually knowing uh, the cultures that we're trying to engage with, or indeed uh, talking to people from those cultures that we engage uh, wisely. Uh, A little while ago at the bridge, um, we decided that we, we thought it'd be a really good outreach strategy to, um, to start a, a course based on the Insanity Workout course. You may have come across this. This is an exercise um, uh, course, and what we did was we got the videos in, and uh, we'd come along to, to church, and we'd play the Insanity Workout, which, as the name implies, was, was quite a full-on kind of 20 minutes of, of exercise, and then have a Bible talk afterwards. And I remember, I can see the laughter from the front already. And I remember um, we were doing a, a prayer meeting or something, and someone came along who didn't normally come, a, come along from the estate. And she saw this on the, on the prayer um, list. And she just started guffawing with laughter. And you know, what's wrong? Well, who, who do you think is going to come to this? I can't think of any guy on this estate who would come to this. And uh, basically, I thought that this was a good idea in my head and not really consulted anyone. And, you know... There was me on my own with the associate pastor becoming very fit, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but without anyone else uh, being there. So look, an outcome from this might be an audit. You know, actually, do, do we know uh, what's going on in our local area? That might be one kind of outcome. Or, or it might be an uh, invitation. Now, probably you guys are really good at this, but for example, every year, uh, my, my wife and I, we... we uh, about 24 hours before Friday, I'll print out some flyers and uh, just drop them in the letterboxes of our estate around and say, look, come round for Christmas drinks um, tomorrow. And uh, sometimes lots of people come, sometimes uh, not very many come. But I think two years ago, there were about 20 people that came from our local estate we hadn't ever met. All we did was put an, an, an invitation through their letterbox. One of those was um, uh, 
a Russian woman who'd just moved to the UK. A few months uh, later, the, the, the war broke out. She felt so isolated. But actually, we'd made this connection, uh, which completely changed the game for her. But it was just the pure fact that we decided, let's just invite our neighbours to something. And again, we were talking about how do we begin to uh, do that hospitality. You know, they may not come, but you send a message to your community. Uh, welcome. So a couple of things to, to reflect on. If we turn over the page now, we're now thinking about uh, if that was taking stock, those two sections, our, our mindset and our community, this is now thinking about how we grow in our attitude and engagement uh, with difference. So just a word on these, this first section, cultivating our character, three uh, sections there, prayer, um, uh, we might intentionally be praying, uh, about our hearts uh, in, in this kind of area. Um, uh, we've got a day that we give, uh, a Sunday a year, to, to particularly praying uh, for um, our engagement with different cultures, and that's been a real blessing to us. That's not the only way, there's you know, all kinds of things that we might do, but thinking about that. Uh, lament. Uh, I was speaking to someone in our estate recently who's a white working class mum. Her son, 16, hadn't seen him for a while, so I was asking about how he was doing. And he was really struggling at school. You might know white working class boys are the most at risk of social exclusion in uh, society at the moment. And uh, she'd taken him down to the coast just to get him out of London for a few days. Now we could do nothing about that, uh, but we could pray with her and kind of lament uh, with her. And it helped us to understand her situation a bit more. And then a uh, third one down there is, I guess, uh, humility. Even today in this session, the, the end result isn't that we will be uh, perfectly equipped to engage with different cultures. That will never happen. But hopefully we, we get to a point where we are um, more aware of our own limitations and wanting to learn. In other words, we have a, an attitude of humility when we uh, approach other uh, cultures. I want you to just have a think in your groups. Which one of those things uh, would you like to go away and think, process, do even more as a result of this weekend? Prayer, lament, humility. Have a think about that for a couple of minutes. Okay, I'm going to draw us back there. Make sure you put a ring around the one that you particularly... Uh, wanted to reflect on more or think about more. Um, what's your action going to be from the conversation you just had? What we've just been thinking about is tied to what we're now thinking about, which is cultivating our friendships. Um, it's when we know people from different cultures well that we then understand what it might mean to weep with those who weep uh, or to bear their, up their burdens like we're told in Galatians 6 or indeed uh, to apologise and forgive like we uh, read in Ephesians 4 verse 32. And so um, a question for us to consider is are we cultivating cross-cultural relationships? Now look, before I go any further, look, we can't do everything. We've already talked about having limited time and capacity and all of that. So we really need to be realistic in this. And it's worth saying as a banner over all that we're saying, we're not saying you just have to go away from this weekend and do a hundred more things. Uh, it's about thinking what are the one or two things that I might be able to do over a long period of time that could make a difference. Because okay, you can't, otherwise we're just 
weighing ourselves down with guilt and burdens that are unsustainable, right? Okay, so that's not what we're talking about. But, for example, what would it mean to invest in one friendship over the next two years? A lot of our friendships end up being passive. They certainly do in my case. I, I end up spending most of my time with, with people who God just happens to put in my path for work or whatever, and they often end up being people who are like me. What would it mean to invest intentionally in um, someone who is different? So more than just someone who I speak to on a Sunday over coffee because there's lots of different people at church, more than even just someone in my home group who I have a Bible study with once a week, but someone who I choose to go intentionally deeper uh, with. Uh, Jesus gives us a great model for that in John chapter 4. He intentionally goes to meet this woman from Samaria. He goes a completely different route to the one that he needed to go because he wanted to meet this woman. He was intentional about it. He was humble about it. He starts his conversation and relationship with woman, this woman by saying, will you give me a drink? He doesn't start by saying, let me teach you, let me train you. He says, will you help me with the resources and wisdom that, that you have? Uh, a friend of mine uh, was wanting to make some, uh, some tea, uh, some Indian tea. I've got a neighbour who has the cardamom seeds that I need. He could have gone to Sainsbury's. He knocked on the door of his neighbour and said, look, have you got any cardamom seeds? I'm really wanting to make this tea. And it started a conversation uh, with this uh, neighbour. Um, um, uh, it was a summer a few years ago, and um, it was really hot sort of stretch. And I'm fortunate enough that we're on the ground floor. We've got a, we've got a little outside area. It's got a fence uh, out, out the side of it. And at the end of our little stretch, um, uh, the person who owned that, the, the flat uh, began to varnish their, their fence. I remember coming home and seeing this. I thought, that looks quite nice. And then a couple of days later, the next neighbour obviously thought, that looks quite good. And he started to varnish his fence as well. Then the next, you can imagine what happened the next day, the next neighbour. So there, there I am coming home from work and I'm seeing varnish fence, varnish fence, varnish fence. And I'm thinking to myself, woe is me, my fence is not varnished. And I happened, somehow this, this I thought this was an internal thought, but somehow it came, I said it out loud. Now the next day, my neighbour, who happens to be a Somali Muslim, is, is inside of my house, well, inside of the garden, painting my fence. Now the point of the story is actually we'd spent six months trying to make connections with this neighbour. Can we cook you some food? Can we uh, bring you something to eat? No, 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 no. Actually when we showed need, he was in our garden painting our fence. What might it look like for us to, to actually show our need rather than we come to, to do to you? And of course at the end of John chapter 4, um, Jesus doesn't merely assume that everything about this person's ethnic background is good. He actually calls out sin. And that's really important to say in today's uh, culture and climate, that actually um, uh, showing interest in different cultures doesn't mean we have to assume that everything is good. Every culture has things that are good and things that are, are not so good, that are sinful. Uh, of course, Jesus is God. He's able to do that perfectly. We need to be careful. And yet at the same time, uh, calling out sin is a Jesus-like thing to do as we engage in cross-cultural relationships. So take a moment to think, is that something that we're doing? Is that something that's normal? Is that something that we could grow in? What do we think? Let's have a conversation about that. Okay, guys, um, I realise that was desperately short, but I want us to just do this uh, last little box 
before we uh, draw to a close. Um, as we talk to one another, we're thinking about cultivating our communication, as we talk to one another, um, one of the, the biggest ways that we can go wrong as we talk to people who are from different cultural backgrounds is not being reflective, not being self-reflective about what, what is normal for us and not uh, being curious enough about other people. So we can end up assuming lots about what other people are thinking in a conversation, when actually there might be lots of differences in the way that we think and process stuff that means that there's all kinds of room for misunderstanding. The, the exercise here is really to be reflective on how you tick, rather than necessarily becoming an expert in how other people tick. But, but even in doing that, uh, hopefully that will help us to be more reflective when we're having conversations across cultures. So uh, as you look up this uh, table, if you like, the things on the left are things that tend to line up together. They don't have to, but they tend to line up together. Uh, and the things on the right tend to line up together. They're cultural things, not necessarily good or bad, although in certain situations they might make stuff better or worse. But what I'd love you to do is have a think, where do you line up personally? And if you're brave enough, you might share that. Where do you line up? Uh, on this. So I guess that means putting a cross or a dot on each line because it might be different for each uh, line. Does the task make sense as I've, I've explained it there? So written, oral, to what extent you know, would you be happy for someone to send you a text versus give you a, a call and so on as you go down. Just to explain maybe the one at the bottom, uh, that's to say when you walk into a situation like a Bible study or if you're sitting in a circle like, um, like you guys out there, are you thinking that everyone's got an equal voice here? Everyone can say whatever they, they want. Or are you thinking, for example, Tom is the most important thing here, most important person here. What he says is the most valuable thing. I can't really speak until Tom has spoken. I'm seeing a lot of laughter there, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but do you get the idea? Okay. Uh, in other words, when you go into a situation, you're just very aware of maybe differences in power. Uh, or do you just think, no, we're all the same here? So look, have, have a think about that. Maybe try and put a, a, a cross against each line. Just try and be reflective about the way that you're wired. It might help you to be reflective as you move into other conversations. Let's do that for a couple of minutes. Well, guys, I'm uh, sorry to have to uh, draw you back there. This is one of the exercises that um, I reckon is well worth um, mulling over over a drink or something later because I think you'll, I mean, I've heard from this group down here that even flatmates have discovered, wow, we're, we, did, we thought we knew how the other uh, thought about things, but in fact we had no idea. And, uh, and the thing is, what, one of the things that that reveals as well, it, it's the assumptions we can make. So we go into a conversation thinking someone is wired a certain way and it might be completely different. Now these things have very practical implications. If you're trying to organize a rotor, if someone's written versus oral, that makes a massive difference. If you're at a PCC meeting and you think you've got consensus, but some people are much more indirectly focused and some more, are more direct focus. Um, when you say no to someone and they have a really keen sense of power dynamics, that can make a massive difference or be a massive blow to them maybe in a way that it 
you think it's nothing. So these things actually have real practical, tangible uh, impacts. We're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to make all kinds of mistakes. We need to, as Christians, you know, keep short accounts, be quick to forgive, and keep trying, persevering. But a, a better reflectiveness about ourselves and about others, being curious about others, can help us. Uh, we, I think, are due to finish uh, now, Tom. The biggest pitfall we can make is tokenism. Uh, we get around that by including others in our decision-making rather than just putting them on platforms. Thank you, Tom, uh, for modelling that as we've planned this uh, weekend away. I thought I'd been very much part of how these talks went rather than just get the black guy to, to speak. Um, <laughs> which would be tokenism. Sorry, that's... I'm trying to... <laughs> maybe come out a bit wrong yeah? <laughs> and uh, of course the, the biggest barrier is trust that is the hard thing um, getting to a point where we trust each other enough uh, to keep going and to persevere let me pray and I'll hand back over to Tom loving Heavenly Father thank you uh, for this time that we've had just to uh, think and chew over some of the, the practical implications of seeking to be an intercultural church. We have very much just scratched the surface of a number of things, but I pray uh, that, that this will be the start of many, many fruitful conversations, uh, that in your kindness uh, it would help us to grow in trying to um, work out what it looks like to, to make progress uh, as a, a church. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that in all of this uh, you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.